Midway through the first service, as uh, one of our elders was leading in prayer for Priscilla, our our, uh, missionary in Brazil, my eight-year-old leaned over to me and totally unprompted said, Dad, when you pray, you should pray for Vinny's wife. Now, you may not know, Vinny Sanseverino is in our congregation, is probably in the latter stages of terminal cancer, and his wife's name is Gail. I have no idea why Josiah wants us to pray for Gail this morning, but it sounds like something God might want us to do. So let's intercede for them as we ready ourselves for the word this morning, okay? Um, Father, we want to really be responsive and obedient to the promptings you give us, and so we pray this morning, especially for Gail, as she watches her uh, beloved Vinny ready himself to go home with you, that you would be her comfort, and that you would protect her from the evil one who shows no mercy even in situations like this. And Lord, that you would um, bless them richly in their last days here together as it appears to us and ready Vinny fully for the joy that awaits him as he stands before you. We thank you for the good news of Christ that gives us hope even when we stare death in the face. This morning, may we recapture the beauty of that and the privilege it is for us to share in the spreading of that good news of hope uh, to all peoples. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, you need to know, if you come into my office, it's like coming into a map room. Uh, There are maps on the wall from every country that I visited when I go on mission trips. There are decorative maps. You sit in my chairs. They're covered with maps. Uh, I'm fascinated by maps, really enjoy them. And I I think of the book of Acts in the New Testament like a map. It shows us geographically how the gospel unfolds and is intended by God to unfold from its inception in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we want to get a sense for where we fit in that, because the book of Acts, it's our story. It's where we fit in, in a sense. Let me show you what I mean by that. We've seen, as we've been surveying the Bible this year, that God, it all starts kind of the unfolding of six acts is the way you can think of the story of the Bible. Act one is the creation, which was very good. Act two is the fall into sin, which was not good. And Act 3 is God's rescue attempt as he gets ready for a king by choosing Israel who will bring a king into the world to restore creation in a right relationship with him. And we saw last week that the Gospels are where Act 4 happens, where it's the coming of the king in his kingdom, that Jesus is that long-awaited king. Now, after the Gospels in the New Testament comes the book of the Acts of the Apostles, it's called, the book of Acts. And that starts Act 5 of this drama, the six-act drama. The good news of the kingdom is spread by the church, by us. And we find our place on the back end of this fifth act that starts in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really um, a second volume, sort of, to the Gospel of Luke. Probably written by the same fellow, written by Luke, probably written to the same audience. Um, And it is the continued story 
of the ministry of the exalted Christ by His Spirit through His church to take the good news to all peoples. That's what the book of Acts is about. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, after Jesus, the risen Christ, said this to His disciples, He was taken up before them their very eyes, and a cloud hid Him from their sight. And Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He is overseeing this unfolding of the mission of God that the good news would go to everybody before he returns. Now it says, after he said this, this is what Jesus said. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the commission given to his disciples, given to the church to us. This is our commission. Jesus wants us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that little kind of threefold division, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, is kind of a rough map-like outline geographically of the book of Acts. It kind of follows that threefold um, division. Let me see if I can show that to you and give you a sense for how this ought to be shaping our lives. And in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, that was 50 days after they celebrated the Passover, it was a Jewish feast of pilgrimage when everybody came to Jerusalem from all over the place, from all countries, to offer gifts to God. When that day came, Pentecost, the believers were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And this is just one of these divine coincidences, right? This just happens to happen at Pentecost when People from all nations had gathered there. And the disciples are given this amazing spirit-filled ability to speak those languages. And so what's going on here is it's not... I don't want us to be fascinated with the fact that they spoke in languages they didn't know. That's fascinating. But what I want you to see is that it's purposeful of God that the people from nations would come... And the disciples would be given this divine ability to speak to them in their language. So that what God started way back in Genesis. Remember in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's how the Bible starts, and it's how the Bible ends. Book of Revelation. They sang a new song to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And at Pentecost, this is unfolding in a whole new way. As the church is born and the Spirit is given... And Peter stands up and proclaims an amazing message about Christ to the city. Um, And as we saw earlier, 
3,000 people were baptized and added to their number on that day. Peter's first sermon, right? Fresh out of seminary, first one. 3,000 people line up to get baptized. It's pretty stunning. God is doing amazing things. And so a new community is created at Pentecost. This, this thing called the church comes together as the Spirit is poured out on God's people. And this is how they're described. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And that's the portrait of the church at its birth. There's a, a rendering of this passage that updates the language and describes a portrait, uses that same passage to describe a portrait of the church now. Let me read that to you, Acts 2.42 from the RCV. They devoted themselves to the nightly news update and to their personal interests and to hobbies and to ACC sports, better homes and gardens, and to email. Everyone was bored to tears, and nothing that wasn't ever in the five-year plan was ever done by the pastoral staff. All the believers were isolated and considered their stuff as their own. If someone had a need, they sent into the government-run social services programs and then complained about their high taxes. Once a week tops, they met together in the sanctuary. They never set foot in each other's homes, and when they were together, it was marked by surface conversations about sports and the weather and facades to cover up any real problems they might be experiencing. They went through the motions of worship on Sunday and were considered hypocrites by all the people because they did whatever they pleased during the week. And mercifully, the Lord spared most folks from being added to their number. This is from the RCV, affectionately known as the reality check version. Raises a question. What are we devoted to? Not, not what do we say we're devoted to. Really, what are we devoted to? What are we, what's the center of our activities? What's the center of our attention? What are the non-negotiables? You know, if we're devoted to something, we go to great pains to keep it in our lives. When we get busy, we fight to keep what we're devoted to in our schedules. What are you devoted to? What's central, non-negotiable? What do you always make time for? What do you always have money for? What are you willing to sacrifice other things for? Home decor? Eating healthy? Watching sports? Favorite TV show? Politics? News? Latest technology? Work? Working out? Cleanliness? Children? What are you devoted to? See, in the early church, right at her birth, four things marked their devotion. Apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's, let's unpack those just for a minute this morning because these shape the church throughout Acts and they're intended to shape it throughout the Old New Testament into our age. Okay. 
devoted to the teaching of the apostles. You know, thousands of new converts in Jerusalem hanging on the teaching of the apostles as they told them about Jesus who lived this amazing life and bore their sins on the cross and suffered there on their behalf and then was raised from the dead. Would it be fair to say that you are devoted to the Word of God? That it's central, non-negotiable, and not easily squeezed out of your life and schedule? That you hang on every word when it's taught? Do you consult it, memorize it, think about it, read it, study it, and if your church offered a class steeped in it on a Sunday morning, would you be faithful to attend it? Would you make sure that children are instructed in it? Well, central to the expansion of the gospel from that first day was their devotion to the teaching of the apostles. They were also devoted to the fellowship. Um, The idea here is, is definitely not just some kind of meeting and likely not coffee and donuts. It's a kind of sharing together of of what they had and of life itself. Doing life together, sharing stuff whenever there's a need. This is common in the early descriptions of the church. Acts chapter 4 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. How devoted are you to the fellowship, to sharing your life and your stuff with the people in this room? Have you had any interaction with the people in this room since last Sunday? Have you shared, when was the last time you shared a meal with someone in this room, in your home or theirs, voluntarily? Okay, not under compulsion. Not because your small group leader made you. When was the last time you gave to meet a need that you heard about somebody having in this room? Are you devoted to the fellowship or are you isolated from the fellowship? They were devoted. It marked the early church. They were, they were radically devoted to the people that filled the room where they were, to the church. And they were devoted, it says, to the breaking of bread. Um, could be just sharing a meal, but it also has overtones of the Lord's Supper, which has the idea of the centrality of cross-centered worship. When they came together, they wanted to remember the cross, remember what Christ had done for them, fix it in their minds to never forget. This was only a couple months after he died, and they're already devoted to the breaking of the bread and remembering of the cross. They didn't want to forget the cross. Devoted to the breaking of bread. And lastly, devoted to prayer. If you have the King James Version, it says devoted to prayers. Literally, it could be rendered devoted to the prayers, which sounds like something formal, maybe something corporate that they did together. Gatherings just for prayers, the prayers. 
Um, you know, we, we gather as a church family once a month on Sunday evenings. How devoted are you to the prayers at Northway? To corporately gathering for prayer. I mean, is that easily bumped from your schedule? If there's not child care provided that suits your family, is that enough to knock you out of prayer? Well, in the early church, this is the stuff they were devoted to. Apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Do they mark you? Well, we look again at this description of the early church, and they're devoted to these things, and everyone's filled with awe because the apostles are doing amazing things. And down at the end, it says, The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. But again, this is activity focusing in and around Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. And God is about to expand that from Jerusalem up into Judea and Samaria. Here's Jerusalem, the city. And he's about to expand that activity into the region of Judea and all the way up into Samaria, which is a non-Jewish region, by the way. And the way that he does it is fascinating. There's a, a guy named Stephen who is full of God's grace and power in Acts 6. Did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people, but opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And when they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now, Stephen preaches a phenomenal sermon um, that's very convicting to them in Acts chapter 7. This is their response to that sermon. When they heard him, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The gospel spreads by means of a persecution that came as a result of this. Um, It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So you see what's happened. This persecution through Stephen's death comes upon the church spearheaded by a fellow named Saul. And everybody except the apostles are scattered. So the regular folk like you and me, the non-apostolic guys, are scattered throughout those neighboring regions. And it says in verse 4, the next verse, those who had been scattered, the regular folk, preached the word. Wherever they went. Just regular people. 
God was using to spread the good news of Christ by means of suffering and hardship. Suffering and hardship serve God's purposes. They do not thwart His mission. So when you lose a job, or you get forced into a transfer, or you don't get in the school of your choice, when you get sent where you do not want to go and maybe didn't choose to go, what's God doing? Maybe He's fulfilling His mission. Maybe He's spreading the word through you to someone in that place. Throughout Acts, suffering and persecution serve to spread the gospel, not to stop it. And so the gospel moves out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, kind of by accident. It wasn't some strategy. Persecution drove them out. It was just kind of, kind of what the reaction was. There was no plan. But that's about to change. Because in chapter 9, this fellow named Saul, the persecutor, is dramatically converted to Christ. And he's given this commission by God through Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Saul... We know him as Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul is commissioned, Saul's commissioned, to go to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the non-Jews with the good news of Christ. Just one chapter later, Peter has a vision. About noon, it says, following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open, something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth, birds of the air. And a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So Peter gets a powerful vision. He needs it three times impressed upon him. But a guy named Cornelius has already had a vision too. He's a Roman soldier, a centurion. And he's been sent to Peter's house to hear the good news about Christ. And he brings Peter to his house and he gathers his family of pagan Romans around him. And says, while Peter was still speaking these words to to, uh, Cornelius' family, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who'd come with them, with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So this Gentile household, Roman soldier's household, has now come to faith. His whole household is converted. But more importantly, Peter's converted. Peter gets it now. He now understands that the gospel's for all people, regardless of their race. It's for Gentiles as well as for Jews. And that leads the church in Antioch to undertake something for the very first time in chapter 13 of Acts. This church in a city called Antioch 
there were prophets and teachers there, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off to the Gentile lands, to the Gentile peoples. This is what the church has done ever since Acts 13. The local church commissions and sends out people to bear the good news of Christ to people who haven't heard yet. Um, The focus from this point on is on Paul and these journeys that he gets sent on. There are three main missionary journeys that Paul gets sent on. Um, The first one is in chapters 13 and 14, and he travels with Barnabas. Typically, they would follow a pattern kind of like this at the end of Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue. They get rejected there by the Jews. So they say, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, for the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were all glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And so Paul, on his first missionary journey, um, travels throughout. He, He leaves Antioch over in this area. That's where the church has sent him out. And he goes to the island of Cyprus and up through southern Turkey a little bit on his first missionary journey. And lots of Gentiles on that journey are coming to know Christ. And that creates a problem. There's a dispute that breaks out. It says in Acts chapter 15 that there's some men who came down from Judea to Antioch, where Paul was sent out from, and they were teaching the brothers there, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. You have to become Jewish to be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So the question is, what must I do to be saved? Do I have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Do I have to become a Jew? Today, that debate continues in different language sometimes. What must I do to be saved? Must I believe or must I believe and be baptized? Must I believe and be baptized and speak in tongues? Must I believe and be baptized and speak in tongues and be a member of your denomination or your particular church? What must I do to be saved? One side in Acts 15 said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas said, no, We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And thanks be to God, Paul and Barnabas prevail. The church in Jerusalem sides with them that the gospel is simply believing that you have sinned and been separated from your God and that Jesus came and walked this earth as God in the flesh lived a sinless life, died on the cross, not for his sins, but for yours, and then rose from the dead on the third day. See, from the very beginning of the church, if you believe that, you can be saved. 
And it's true today. If you believe that, that your sins have made a wreck of your life and you need a Savior to bear them for you, and Jesus is that Savior, died on the cross for your sins, raised from the dead on the third day, you can be saved before you leave this room today. Still true. Gospel has not changed. Well, they get that settled and they send Paul out on a second journey. His second of three journeys. Unfortunately, he has a falling out with Barnabas. And it's recorded right there in the Bible. This is one of the reasons we believe the Bible is so true. This is not a happy time for the church. It's sad. They have a fight and they can't even work together. So he goes on his second journey, not with Barnabas, but with Timothy and Silas. And this time, they go farther. You know, they they don't just go into, into southern Turkey... But they go all the way up and all the way over into Greece before they return. And the gospel is expanding one more level. Um, Acts shows us how it's unfolding. And all along the way, Paul's bringing people to Christ, planting churches. um, And he travels, interestingly enough, through his hometown of Tarsus. He leaves Antioch and he goes up and he travels through a little town called Tarsus. Now, Northwake has a family, Rob and Christy, who are living right about there, just outside of Tarsus. And I had a chance to go visit them this year. And while they were there, we went up to the top of this mountain and we found this Roman road from the time of Paul. I'm not kidding you. It's that old. It's still there. And we walked down this road. Could have been the road that Paul was on on his, on his second missionary journey and then again on his third. He went through the same way. It's just right outside of Tarsus. Up, no signs, nothing up on the top of this hill. But on the way up, we pick up this guy who's a young college student to be our guide. We, his dad was hitchhiking and Rob picked him up. And we took this hitchhiker to his home, which was right near uh, this village. And so his son, the college student, takes us up there. And Rob here is explaining to him who Paul is who walked this area from Tarsus and what Paul's message was about Jesus who died on the cross for his sins and rose from the dead. This young Muslim Kurd is hearing the gospel through North Wake's ministry and a family that's living there. And, of course, you go just back into Rob's town and they're living and ministering amongst who? The Kurds whom you just took a giant step towards getting the gospel to by funding that translation project a couple weeks ago. So it's the coolest thing in the world. We are still, the church, still taking the gospel to the people um, in these same areas where the Apostle Paul was living and serving. We have one more journey, a third journey. It's in chapters 18 through 21. And this time, he kind of goes back and retraces his steps and visits a lot of the churches that he started. You know, he's planting churches. He's sharing the good news. He's also writing the New Testament. During these journeys, he's probably written um, Galatians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, the book of Romans. All he's writing while he works making tents and living amongst the people and planting churches and on the side writing the New Testament. He's a very busy guy, uh, the Apostle Paul these days. Something um, really amazing happens. He spends three years in a city called Ephesus, 
um, on this third journey, and crazy stuff starts happening in Exodus or in Ephesus, rather. Uh, chapter 19 says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons, stuff that was left over from his tent making ministry that he wore, uh, that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. What is that about? Okay, this sounds like something on TV, doesn't it? Um, What do you think about involuntary, unintentional miracles where somebody grabs one of Paul's sweat rags from his shop and takes it to somebody and they're healed by touching it? Uh, I'll tell you, I'll just give you a handful of things that makes me think about. What amazing grace that God is so kind that he would bring health to someone by touching a rag that Paul touched in his shop. That's grace. Um, And what incredible power through such little faith. They just thought, if I could just touch the rag, they didn't have to like swim the English Channel or win the Olympics. Just touch a rag. What power flows through faith? And God does weird and unexpected things, doesn't he? He, he does not act the way we think he would. He's outside of our boxes a lot. And this is one of those times when God does what he chooses in the way that he chooses that will bring him the most glory. Um, why doesn't it happen today so much? Well, if you remember, one reason is that it seemed to happen a lot around the ministry of the apostles. Um, You know, the absence of apostles may account for some of that. Um, Don't expect, you know, touch mark, leader box, do rag, and you're going to get the same result as getting the Apostle Paul's, you know, work apron. Um, the, The apostles are not here. But hey, we should expect the same miracle working God who has put his spirit within his body is still here. And shouldn't we see these kinds of things happening? Shouldn't we pray for them, hope for them, expect them? That's why our elders, when the sick come to us, we still anoint them with oil and pray for healing in the name of Christ, just like we're told to do in the New Testament times. Because God has not changed. And according to his prerogative, he still does these things. The more we reach out for God in desperation, turning from our idols, which is what's happening here, the more we see God do amazing things in our midst. Oftentimes in Acts, it's in response to prayer. The church was praying and the jail cells opened. So I wonder, if we become earnestly devoted to the prayers, might we see God do more great and amazing things in our midst? But anyway... Paul goes back to Jerusalem after this third journey and he reports. And as things start to unfold, he finds himself in trouble and gets arrested. The whole city of Jerusalem is aroused by Paul and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut. While they're trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. 
So Paul is seized by a mob. A riot ensues involving maybe thousands of people. He's dragged away from the temple by the mob who are shouting, Away with him! The same words that were shouted when Jesus himself was crucified. His beating is stopped only by his arrest. His deliverance is secured by being carried through the mob by a company of at least 200 soldiers. So Paul is surely beaten and bloodied at this time, maybe on the way to more of that at the hands of his Roman interrogators. And what is Paul asked to do? He says, can I speak to the crowd? I want to tell them my story. And that's exactly what he does. Acts 22, this bloody guy gets up after being beaten and they're trying to kill him. And what does he want to do? He wants to tell them his story. He said, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And he's speaking to them in their language, in Aramaic, and they became very quiet. And Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, brought up, trained in the law of your fathers. And he goes on in Acts 22 and says, this is what my life was like before I met Christ. This is how I met Christ. And this is what it's like after. This is what I've been commissioned to do. He doesn't get much chance to get to the after because that stirs them up so much. But basically, he tells his story before, how, and after. He undergoes a half a dozen trials, all of them useful in God's hands for the gospel to be shared. Over and over again, Paul tells his story. When was the last time you told your story? When was the last time you said to somebody, you know, God has been extraordinarily good to me? Let me tell you about it. You ever done that? Why has it been so long? Have you, have you forgotten what a great story it is? Have you forgotten what your life would be like if that story wasn't true for you? Where you'd be, where you'd be headed? Are you afraid? Or maybe, maybe it's because you don't have a story yet. Maybe you've never met Christ in a way that changes your life. Well, Acts closes in chapter 28 with Paul carried to Rome as a prisoner. To get there, He's been traveling down here. Here's a modern-day map. He's been traveling in Turkey and over into Greece. But when he's arrested, he goes all the way over to the island of Malta and then all the way up to Rome. And by his arrest, by his suffering and hardship, the gospel spreads farther than it ever has. And it ends... Acts 28 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there. He's under house arrest in his rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end of Acts 28. But this, this is Acts 29. It's our story. Now the gospel has come to the Americas and it's come to us. And we're passing it on in subdivisions and neighborhoods and workplaces and around the globe. That's why we've got that cool map in the lobby with people's pictures on it. That's why every week, somebody, some North Wake member or family's pictures on the back of your worship guide. Because this is our mission. This is our act, Act 5. Spread the gospel. It's what we do. I want you to think about where you are right now, where God has you. 
in life and even geographically where you live. Even if you're there against your will, maybe you got the wrong job or the wrong school or the wrong neighborhood, but could it be that God has you there to be a bearer of his message? To tell your story there, tell the story of Christ there. Back in Acts 17, Paul's preaching a sermon and he says something really amazing. I think it's Rob Craig's favorite verse. It says, From one man, from Adam, God made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places they should live. You wonder why you live now and why you live there? Because God determined you should live there. Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. So God has you where you are so that men could seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him through your story, through your bearing of the story of Christ where you are. You know, maybe today that God's calling and prompting you to pack up and go to some place you've never been before, somewhere halfway around the globe, to help bear the good news there. Or maybe to help plant a church in one of our great cities that's so lacking in great churches here in the States. As next year, North Wake's scheduled to plant two churches out of our congregation in two of our great cities around the world. To help bear the good news to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. How is God wanting to use you where you are? Where does he want you to go? Is he inviting you to start that story today by a relationship of trust with his son? Worship team's gonna come and lead us in a closing confession of our faith in song. But I wanna encourage you, if God's prompting you today about telling your story and telling the story of Christ or maybe going some new place where you need to tell the story as we sing this first stanza or two, if you would, just make your way down to the front. And I just want to encourage you to kneel down here at the front if you're able. And then we're going to pause in the middle of the song and we're going to pray for God's rich blessing upon your obedience to his prompting this morning. And we'll finish in worship together. So let's stand. Let's worship God this morning.